Welcome to the Mike Litton Experience Podcast. Mike has over 31 years experience in real estate, finance, and investing. He's passionate about being a father, a teacher, a realtor, an investor, and a leader. Everyone has a story, and our passion is to help them tell it. And now, introducing the host of the Mike Litton Experience, Mike Litton. So what can you expect from the Mike Litton Experience? You can expect stories that will inspire, motivate, advice that will sharpen your focus, and expert information on real estate, finance, and market conditions. So Peter Varberg, thank you so much for being our guest on the Mike Litton Experience, bud. And thank you for house, for, for hosting us. Yes. We're at the <laughs> Gathering, just, for, just so you know, we're taping at the Gathering Church in um, in Mira Mesa yeah. in, in California, San Diego, California. Um, and we're in their studio. You guys started this, um, you started this when COVID hit so that you could share. Yeah, we have share we also a podcast. So yeah, know, some, this stuff here we're using is the churches and it's just, it's something that's evolved. It was something during pod, or during COVID where we couldn't come in to church anymore. Yeah. And we used the audio format and then it evolved um, once churches open back up, just to be a way to share stories of cool. people's lives and just everyday people in our church versus like, that, here's this Christian author and yeah. speaker. It's just That's awesome. someone you see near your congregation. That's awesome, man. Well, thank you again for hosting yeah. us. Couldn't couldn't appreciate you more. So, so as we talked about before we hit record, we know that everybody has a story and our yeah. passion is to help them tell it. Okay, so what we'd like to do with your permission is start with where you were born yeah. and then go all the way through your life story up to today. And then we can talk about anything you'd like to talk about uh, that you're working on today or, you know, things for yeah. tomorrow, that kind of thing. Is that cool. cool? Yeah. So I was actually born, and it's great that you're videotaping so you can see, <laughs> blonde hair, blue eyed, uh, born in uh, Cebu City, Philippines. Okay. So um, I actually grew up in Tacloban City. Wow. Um, and we didn't have great hospitals at the time I was born. So we, my parents went across to Cebu and it was actually during a major typhoon. Wow. So there's a picture of me um, as a little baby, newborn, riding a little, they call them bancas. So it's okay. like a little outrigger canoe okay. to get like back home to Tacloban. And one of the legs of the journey <laughs> was on one of those. But yeah, so the, uh, um, I know like the power was going out because of the typhoon. My oh dad my had to find a generator. so. It was one of these whole things. Yeah. But yeah, so I was born out there. My parents are missionaries. They work. Um, they started a church and a school in Tacloban. Okay. And so growing up uh, through elementary school, I went to a local school. Okay. So um, I, me and my brother were like the only white kids. Sometimes <laughs> there might be one or two others. Please talk out a little. And yeah. And the, the unique thing... Um, different than some other countries throughout the world. The Philippines, their schools teach Tagalog, which is the natural mm -hmm. national language, or English. So okay. basically all of my classes were primarily in English. Okay. And then there was a um, two Tagalog classes on the language and one on history. Mm -hmm. But the local area we were in spoke a different language called Warai, which okay. we actually weren't allowed to speak in school oh my because they were trying to teach yeah. You know, different than America, most other countries are multilingual. Yeah. So, although 
Obviously, I'm quite familiar with Filipino languages. I would never say I'm quite fluent because yeah. I never had to be. Yeah. They wanted me to speak English yeah. so they could learn from me. Oh, sure. Absolutely. So that was uh, um, younger years. And kind of our, our timing throughout my childhood mm -hmm. was we'd spend four years in the Philippines. Okay. And my parents would be working on different projects like launching different ministries or... Um, like one year they started a school that's now a K through 12 um, Christian school in Tacloban. Oh, cool. But uh, then we'd spend one year and come back to America. Okay. Um, so I would, like when I was two, when I was six, when I was, what, uh, middle yeah. school, yeah. 10, 11, and then junior year high school. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't completely separated. It wasn't quite like the culture shock of living in the Philippines and then coming here for college. And then um, come middle school, the Philippine schools at the time, they went straight from sixth grade to high school. Oh, so okay. you graduate high school at 16 okay. versus 18. Ooh, that's cool. So by the time I got to middle school, I went to an international school mm -hmm. um, in Manila, in the capital, which is about 400 miles away. You have to take a plane. So I would go home four times a year. Wow. I lived in dorms, so from oh 12 gosh. years, 12 year old till I graduated high school, yeah. I lived in a dorm. So I had like 15 other brothers, wow. either two or three roommates at a time, oh, cool. <laughs> dorm parents. So very different style growing up. Yeah. So were you the oldest, youngest? So I was the middle. Okay. But my youngest sister is seven years younger. Okay. So for a lot of my growing up, it was like the two brothers competing, sibling rivalry, and then she came along, um, and that was right around the time that we we had like one four-year stint mm -hmm. that we were all together, yeah. but then by the time she was five was kind of around the time that I went off to yeah. boarding school. Yeah. So there was a big chunk of her life that, you know, I would miss here and there. Yeah. Um, so it's cool that she lives in San Diego now, and we, we have a good relationship now. That's awesome. But... Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful with the way that we grew up yeah. and that separation. Yeah. So yeah, um, it was different growing up. Um, I think every, every kid wants to fit in yeah. at some capacity. Yeah. I remember wanting to dye my hair black before because I was like, <laughs> I'm really bad at hide and seek. Yeah, just standing out like a sore thumb thing. Yeah, come on. Yeah, and uh, it's unique too because... Um, the Philippines has a really positive relationship with America. Okay. A lot of my friends um, didn't necessarily have an interest in nursing, but were studying nursing okay. so they could get a sort of a chance to come to America. Mm -hmm. And obviously with the Second World War, if you're a history buff, um, Tacloban, where I grew up, is famous because that's where MacArthur landed. Okay. It was actually the capital of the Philippines while they were, MacArthur was taking it back from Japan. Wow. So. Um, that being said, you know, there was like a sense of, even though I was very different, mm -hmm. it wasn't sort of a negative prejudice, right. although I didn't enjoy being treated differently. Yeah. It was almost like a positive, you know, people wanted to be your friend and yeah. people would wave at you and come touch your hair because it was blonde mm -hmm. and <laughs> all that stuff growing yeah. up. So. Just touching your hair when it's blonde is good luck. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm kidding. I don't know. But yeah, oh, I mean, right. it's, you know, wow, what does that feel like, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I get where you're coming from though. You know, when you're a kid, you want to, 
Yeah. You want to blend in. You want to be one of the one of the pack, so to speak, and that kind of thing. And and you weren't. You were no. So you you have a unique a unique feel for what it's like to be a minority. Yes. Big time. Yes. So it's funny now, Mike. Like when I get to states in America mm -hmm. where I look around and everyone looks like looks like me, yeah. I almost feel off. Yeah. Like, this is not. It's part of why I live in San Diego because right. I'm like. I'm used to not being like everybody else. Yeah. And uh, I, growing up, it wasn't my favorite thing. My brother, I think, enjoyed it more because oh, gotcha. it was almost like everybody liked him. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like he couldn't do anything wrong. And he, he, he like soaked it up. Mm -hmm. And for me, I was more of the shy kid yeah. that was like, you know, let me just go about my business. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's a personality thing, right? Yeah. Because, you know, exactly. we all have, we all have different things that, that work for us and don't work for us and that kind of thing. But man, what an amazing way to grow up. So I do have a couple of questions yes. for you about your childhood. Yes. Um, so when you and your brother were growing up and doing the sibling rivalry thing, did you play any sports? Yes. So, um, probably the biggest sport in the Philippines is basketball. Okay. And so that was kind of our big sport. Okay. Um, I also played volleyball. Yeah. So we got to play on the same team for volleyball. Um, we were two years apart. Yeah. So it was like my sophomore year, his senior year. Yeah. But yeah, that was a big part of my life. Um, what was pretty, which was really fun about going to the type of school I went to, mm -hmm. the international school, is because, like I said, Filipino schools would graduate, go to college at 16. Gotcha. So a lot of our varsity sports, we were playing the Filipino college teams mm -hmm. and their JV college teams. Yeah. Sometimes we'd play their varsity teams. So it was oh, a really awesome. high level of um, kind of shake your game up. Yeah. And uh, it was always um, fun that we, we were able to compete at that level because just to give you context, my high school graduating class was maybe 73 students. Ooh, so the school overall you know, K through 12 was probably like 600 people. Wow. So out of that, we consistently had really competitive sports teams mm. and we would do these Far East tournaments. Mm -hmm. So um, we'd partner with a lot of the Department of Defense schools, military schools. And so for um, my sporting, like my high school sports, I got to travel. Mm -hmm. And uh, volleyball um, was kind of the first season sport, and we got to go to Thailand. Ooh. So I got to go to Thailand a few times to play a tournament up there. Yeah. And then for basketball, we went to Hong Kong and Japan. Oh, but that was fun. Yeah. So it was one of those things, you know, it sounds really exciting, it was, but flying from the Philippines to Japan is like flying to Texas, San Diego, right? <laughs> it's, it's not that big of a difference. So it's almost like getting to state, you know, or going to some championship or being on a travel league. Um, but that was one of those are some of my highlights um, cool. of my my high school career and all of that getting to to play sports at a high level and 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 travel. Gotcha. So, what was your favorite thing about growing up in the Philippines? Favorite part? Um, I think there's parts that were my favorite when I was growing up, mm -hmm. and then there's parts now that I look back. Amazing how that works, right? Yeah. Like you look back and go, wow. Was so cool yeah that really helped me with this yeah so I think growing up like as a kid mm -hmm. um, my dad actually his love language is acts of service and he likes quality time so he would often um, although he's really busy he would protect Saturdays to go on adventures with us so oh, cool so he would find 
waterfalls and islands. And although my parents as missionaries didn't necessarily have a lot of money, mm -hmm. my dad was really well connected and he was pretty handy. So he would connect with these Chinese businessmen that had these really nice boats oh. that they would just buy and let sit and yeah. then they would break down. So he'd say, hey, I'll fix your boat for you if you let us use it. Oh, cool. So all throughout growing up, we always had access to these speed boats. We'd go water skiing, awesome. go to different islands. So as a kid, it's like, you know, people see Instagram stories and people mm -hmm. traveling and it's like, oh yeah, that's kind of the lifestyle I lived. Mm -hmm. um, it didn't feel like a luxurious thing and we obviously didn't stay in resorts. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but well, you were in paradise. Um, yes, I was in paradise. And uh, I think it's funny, Mike, because I don't remember where I heard this story, but I've heard that like the Department of Tourism of the Philippines has tried to connect with my dad to learn, because the area we live in, mm -hmm. in Leyte and Samar, these two islands, um, there's a lot of natural beauty, but it's very hard to get to. Okay. So if you travel to the Philippines, you'll probably hear of Boracay or Palawan or El Nido or a lot of these places that are like tourist hubs. Yeah. We don't live near any of that stuff. Okay. But we have like just south on our island uh, migration of whale sharks. Oh, wow. So that's been one of my favorite things, getting sure. to snorkel with whale sharks and coral reefs and dive resorts. So that was probably my favorite part um, as a kid. That's cool. Was just getting to climb trees and jump off waterfalls. Do and cute I feel things. Like, yeah. And even when you ask about sports, it's like, I think that developed just natural coordination. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of things that, you know, living in just a city, mm -hmm. you might not get out and explore the way that I did. So right. that would be my favorite then. Yeah. I think my favorite as an adult, looking back at what did I love about my childhood, obviously I love that part, but um, the perspective, the worldview, mm -hmm. I think is something that's priceless. Even as an adult on trips I've gone um, to Haiti and South Africa and Jamaica have even added more to that. But I can't imagine kind of living in a you know bubble mm -hmm. of what it would be like growing up in a town in America and yeah. not knowing that most of the world doesn't live that way. Yeah. I think it gave me a lot of both humility around, um, and gratitude because mm -hmm. I didn't get, I didn't choose to be born mm -hmm. the way I was born mm -hmm. to the family I did, but because I was born to my family, you know, I have an American passport, you know, I have all the advantages and freedoms of being American mm -hmm. and I could have been born in a really poor family in mm -hmm. some village somewhere. Right. So like that really has changed and affected a lot of how I see the world. Yeah, it, it has to. Yeah. It absolutely has to. Um, so you're in high school, basketball is, yep. is a big sport for you. It's one of your favorites, that and volleyball. Yeah. <clears throat> you're competing with your brother all the time, which is normal. I mean, that's, yeah. you know, the, right? That's the fun part, right? So. In high school, did you have a favorite subject? Yeah, I was um, I was always best at math and science. Okay. And I was the straight A kid. I was um, second salutatorian. There you go. <laughs> Not I got beat out by the Koreans. Oh. Um, very diverse school. But uh, um, in terms of favorite, I enjoyed school. 
but I also saw it as my job yeah. because of the fact that going to college, paying for college was a lot of my responsibility. Mm -hmm. Not that my parents weren't willing to help, but just realistically, there wasn't a ton they could do to help. So mm -hmm. for me, it was almost like if I got a B, that was like, <laughs> you know, I'd like talk to the teacher and try to figure out how, because for me, it's like, this is the money that's going to go to college, yeah. right? Was the attitude I had at that age. But in terms of favorites, I was good at math, um, good at science. I probably favorite overall would be physics, as strange as that sounds. Um, I enjoyed oh, learning, strange. learning about how things work. Yeah, that's not strange at all. And that's one of the things that I love the most about physics was I could put a number in a calculation to why that ball fell the way yeah. it did, right? And why it hit the way it did and why it bounced the way it did. I mean, that kind of stuff just fascinated me. I mean, even opening doors and closing doors, you know, inertia and all that kind of stuff. I just love that stuff. I, I you know, growing up on a farm in Oklahoma, there was a lot going on. Yeah. Right? And we never put a calculation to anything except maybe we need to make sure there's enough diesel in the tractor, you know, kind of thing, right? Um, but when when it came time to sit down and go through something like physics, it was fascinating to me, you know, how things worked and you know the 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 flexibility and torsion of a of a piece of iron or a yeah. piece of you know, it's like, wow, you know, and to know that you can put that in a calculation and then you can replicate it and you can take it somewhere and say, Hey, I need you to build this. Yeah. That just fascinated me. I just think I yeah, I totally get it. So I have a very like engineer brain. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> I didn't end up as an engineer, but it's funny even to this day, like on uh, just the other day, I was with a friend and a car passed by. And it's like, it's weird how, you know, the car sound changes. Mm -hmm. I was like, do you know how that works? And I like explained yeah. the physics behind it. So I right. still, I still nerd out on it. So that would probably cool. be my, my favorite, um, if just favorite subject. I love that. So growing up, yeah, I think I know the answer already, but growing up, who was the most influential person in your life? Yeah, great question. Um, I think a lot, obviously, my, my dad and, and what he did was a big part. Um, and influencing just because my parents, and one thing that's unique about growing up in the Philippines, or the fact that my parents chose to live in the Philippines, is that both of them were raised overseas. Okay. So I've actually lived in America longer than both my parents. Now. Wow. So that's dad, interesting. Um, was the eldest, so he wasn't born in the Philippines, but his he was raised there too. Oh wow! Okay. On a different island, um, and so his dad worked there, and um, my mom was born and raised in what's now the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Okay. At the time, it was Zaire. Okay. So in Africa, so they have very different international worldviews yeah. and then they decided to go to the Philippines together but I think my parents um, as a whole that decision and how they chose to live their life and just the fact that um, and, and when you talk about specifically with my dad um, he was successful in sales throughout college mm -hmm. he'd um, gone into a sales job in his summers that I actually ended up doing when I was in college Wow that's impacted a lot of my life since. But uh, um, I could see as I got older how he could have been extremely successful mm -hmm. in sort of a business world. 
but he chose instead to live his life differently mm -hmm. to impact people that were less fortunate than him. So I think that at a core level made a huge impact on just how I viewed the world, like purpose and meaning in life, where fulfillment comes from, just seeing the joy and, and peace that my parents lived with mm -hmm. when their lifestyle was much less than what, you know, like, Instagram stories might tell us we want. Mm -hmm. You know, we didn't have access to the things my other friends did. Yeah. We were not the the rich kids in school, um, at least comparatively to the upper class. Right. In the Philippines, just being American put us at kind of the bottom of the upper class, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. But yeah, so just those deeper questions, mm -hmm. why am I here? What's life about? Mm -hmm. Um, I think those are the most important ones. Oh, and I agree. My parents and, and my dad really set the tone for, for that in my life early on. A great way to grow up, you know. Yeah. And a real example for you. Yeah. Your dad sounds like an amazing servant leader to me. Yeah, he is. And uh, um, it's just cool, you know, as an adult, I ended up going and working with them for a year. Fun, did you? And so it was kind of fun. You know, as a kid, you always look up to your dad and, you're, I don't care who you are. It's like you see your father do things and mm -hmm. you're like, oh, I just want to be like that. Or yeah. how did he do that? And, and then as an adult, when I went back and, and worked with him at the school um, as a teacher, um, I just remember like him getting my opinion on things mm -hmm. and asking for, and it was almost like from this child to father relationship mm -hmm. of like, anytime I needed something or I had a question, I would call him. Mm -hmm. But then there was almost like the, Hey, we are peers yeah. and we're working together at the same mission, mm -hmm. going towards the same goal. That was a really trippy experience. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it really impacted my confidence and also just shifted the way I saw myself as a young adult. Um, yeah, so hopefully that answers. It does. Yeah. So I'm going to share something with you if it's Go okay. Ahead. Yeah, please. Uh, that's what servant leaders do. So it doesn't matter what your status is in life. Servant leaders seek out your opinion. They seek out what you, they seek out your counsel. And it's a very, very important part of being a servant leader. So it's, it's basically the Socratic method of leadership. Yeah. Right. So, so I, I just recently, um, had a, a I listed a home and sold it for a client and, and I was presenting the husband and the wife with the, with the offer. And it was $110,000 above the list price. I mean, it was amazing, right? Um, and they had done a great job preparing their home and all that kind of thing. I was kind of along for the ride, but, but we, you know, I helped, right? And so I presented it to this hus husband, he signs it right away. His wife looks at it and says, I don't know if I want to sell my house. I think I want to stay here another year. And I said, well, you know, we don't know what prices are going to be in a year. I can't guarantee you that I can get you this. Um, but I'll support you no matter what you decide, right? And so I asked her some questions and what it boiled down to was she was thinking about staying another year with her daughter in, in uh, San Diego. And so I went to work looking around to see if I could find her a rental. And they had a, another property I had sold for them in Carlsbad and this particular property that was for rent happened to be in that, happened to be just a few doors down from that house. Wow. And so I knew they loved the area because they already purchased there, right? And lived there. And so I called on this for rent sign and I get on the phone with the guy and I spent over an hour on the phone with him. Okay. 
And he's asking me just a ton of questions. Almost everything we talked about was parenting, Peter. Wow. Okay. <laughs> this guy has an 11 year old, 13 year old, and 15 year old at home. I've got a 23 and 25 year old, right? And so he's like, well, when, when, when they said this, what did you say? When they said this, what did you say? When they, and I, so I just basically told him, I said, I didn't say anything. Mm. And he went, what? I said, I asked them. I asked them. I asked them over the, t over the span of their childhood, I don't know how many questions, but a lot, okay? Because I was never going to tell my children, you're going to play this sport. You're going to study this subject. You're going to do this. You're going to, I was never going to do that. What I did was I explained to them what the standards were. They could pick anything they wanted to do. They could play football, they could play basketball, they could you know, be in cheer, whatever. These are the standards, right? And then if they had a challenge, any sort of an issue, I would ask them questions to pull out of them where all this was coming from. And I mean, I'm not joking when I tell you, he probably told me 18 times over that hour how brilliant it was how I raised my children, okay? I just used the Socratic method. Yeah. I took what I knew in business and applied it to being a dad. Yeah. That's what your dad was doing. Yeah. So your dad was bringing you into the fold, right? And look at how it felt, Yeah. right? <laughs> that's exactly, that's a leadership lesson, right? It's, it's literally an opportunity to sit and get feedback back. And what he's learning from you is how he raised you. That makes sense? Yeah. He's learning what that product looks like now, now that he's poured all those weekends and all that time in with you and you with me? Yep. And so it's, it's one of the coolest things ever. And the best leaders, the absolute best leaders, don't tell anybody anything. They just listen and they ask. They're just naturally curious, right? It's part of why we do the podcast the way we do, because I want to know about you I don't care about me. I'm concerned. I want to know what's going on with you. I want to know what, how your life, because what's going to happen is people are going to, I may have shared this with you. People are going to listen to this and they're going to connect with you. Might be any number of things. Might yeah. be that they went to boarding school. It might be that they, they had a friend whose dad was a minister, you know, but people look and yearn for that connection. And that's why what we do is we just ask right? It's a big, big part of how, of how you connect. And it's a big, big part of how we do what we do. It's a huge part of leadership. Yeah. Huge part. Yeah. And I get to, uh, um, I just put a video out on my social media about that recently, but I remember the first time I learned about that leadership style in yeah. college, one of my mentors was explaining it to me. And what really resonated is like, oftentimes when you're a leader and someone is struggling with something you typically know the answer mm -hmm. and you can just give it to them yeah but are they likely yeah. to do it yeah no. but if you ask them the right kind of questions so they come to that conclusion themselves now it's their idea so i like to joke if you watch that movie inception mm -hmm. right it's like they would plant physical mm -hmm. ideas and brains it's kind of what you're doing as a leader exactly and what you're doing when you do it what i think is so selfless about it is because, Mike, if I know what you need to do in your life and I just tell it to you, mm -hmm. I get the credit because right. it was my idea. Right. But if I just ask questions and you come up with a conclusion, I don't necessarily ever get the credit. Right. <laughs> right? Like, 
you're the one that's made that decision for yourself and you're more likely to do it. And I'm humbling and letting go of my need to be right and my need to take the credit. So I love the Socratic, you know, even with what I do as a coach, I think that's a lot of my job is just asking the right questions. So Absolutely. To take the right action. Absolutely. And I'll share something else with you. Yeah. You're talking about humility, right? So think about this for a second. If, if I know what you need to do, because I've experienced it, right? If I know what you need to do, I'm going to share it with you and it's going to be fast and it's going to be effortless and it's, hey, I've experienced this, 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 you know, turn left here, right? Yeah. Instead of coming back and saying, okay, well, let me ask you a question, right? And I ask you a series of questions and I help you get to the, to the conclusion that I know you need to get to, right? But I do it by, it takes more effort doing it that, doing it that way. Absolutely. Okay. A lot more effort. That's part of the humility part. That's the servant leadership part, right? So um, a friend of mine a few years ago, and you know I'm all about stories. Yes. But a few years ago, I'm having breakfast in La Jolla. And this friend of mine who's a client, we're sitting and talking about this piece of property that, he's, that we're looking to buy that, has, that he's going to build eight houses on. And it's a very, very beautiful part of San Diego County. These were going to be multi-million dollar homes, the whole thing. And so we're going through sort of the details, and it's boring. It's nothing, you know, it's certainly not exciting, right? We're going through the details, but we had to go through them because I had to make sure that he was up to speed with what we were doing and sort of, for lack of a better term, the risk he was taking. And he just shut off. Like right in the middle of the conversation, he just, he just left me mentally. And so I just stopped and I said, hey, I, I don't know where you are, but you're not here. What's going on? And he goes, you remember our son that we had a year ago? I said, yeah. He goes, we're considering taking him in to have him to have him examined for autism wow. on the autism spectrum. And I said, no, <laughs> why? And he goes, well, he goes, he hasn't said anything in two months. I said, no, that's not even possible. That's not even possible. Because I would call him three months prior. I'd call him and, the, and his boy would be in the back seat. And his boy would talk more than he did when we were on speakerphone because he wanted to be in the conversation. Now you couldn't understand a thing he was saying because it's all baby talk, right? But he was trying to be in the conversation so badly mm. with us, he wanted to, you right? And so I would talk to him over the speakerphone and I'd ask him questions and I'd just talk, you know, and I couldn't understand, you can't understand what he said, but he literally was responding, yeah. right? So I said to him, I said, let me ask you a question. When, when you go home, what do you do? And he said, well, I, I go home, I, I pick him up, I give him a hug and a kiss and tell him I love him and I talk to him. And I said, well, stop doing that. And he goes, which part, right? And I said, well, tell him you love him, right? Give him a hug, tell him you love him, but don't talk to him anymore. Mm. Okay, right? He's literally just like, what's next, right? And I said, when you go home from now on, starting tonight, I want you to do nothing but ask him questions. And he kind of looked at me like a dog that heard a sound for the first time, yeah. right? And I said, I'll tell you why. We are programmed from the moment we come out of the womb to answer questions. And if you don't think so, you catch a two-year-old that's in the middle of a temper tantrum, walk up to them, get in their face and go, what's wrong? What happened? They'll stop and they'll forget what they were upset about. And they'll look at you like, I want to answer that question. It's why the terrible twos are the terrible twos, mm -hmm. because they're trying to communicate and they're not able to yet. 
right? They want to tell you how they feel, but they don't know how to say it. That's why the terrible twos are the terrible, like they're frustrated, right? So, so I said to him, I said, I, I said, they're absolutely programmed to answer questions. So go home and ask him. He can't answer, right? But ask him, how, how, did, how did you do with mama today? Did you take care of mama today? Did you go out and look at the birds? Was it a beautiful day today? How much fun did you have today? What did you do? Did you learn something today? You know, right? Just, okay, ask, 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 ask. And I said, let me ask you another thing. When he wants something, what does he do? He said, he points and he grunts. And I sort of chuckled and he goes, why are you chuckling? And I said, well, that's what I used to do when I was his age, Yeah. right? The thing was, there was a lady that was a neighbor farmer of my, of my grandmother's that had six boys. Mm. She did not anymore have time to go grab stuff for me than the man on the moon, right? So she made me tell her what that was wow. before she went and got it for me, okay? And I said, he's gonna cry. He's gonna cry. So you need to sit down with mama and you need to get on the same page because he's got you trained right now. If when she twins the first baby, if they even sound like they're gonna whimper, you leap up and you yeah, go yeah, do it, yeah. right? I mean, it's like leap, you know, scaling tall buildings in a single bound kind of yeah, thing, right? Yeah, You're, yeah. you know, right? And I said, so he's gonna he's gonna cry. He's gonna throw a fit. Mama needs to be on on board with this, but don't get it for him until he tells you what it is. Okay. Two days later, I called him. I said, how are we doing? He goes, well, we're not taking him to the doctor. <laughs> and I said, why is that? He said, we can't get him to shut up. Yeah, that's great. Mike. He was wanting so badly, Peter, to talk. He just needed somebody to ask. Yeah. Okay. So when people are listening to this, care enough about the people that are in your life and outside of your life to just ask. Okay. Because I promise you, people in this world to a person are dying, literally dying to tell you their story. You just gotta give them permission. It's and true. the best way to do it is to ask. Yeah. Okay. And if you've gotten this far in the podcast, do it. I, I love this exercise where you get anyone in your life or you just pick a conversation yeah. and your goal is, can I get through this conversation only using questions? Yeah. It's so fun and it uh, is a good stretch and it's just working that muscle. Yeah. Cause I think, unfortunately, I think it's gotten worse too with the virtual stuff since COVID, mm -hmm. but human face-to-face -face interaction and conversation has a very weak skill in a lot of people's lives. So taking a chance or an opportunity to find someone Coworker, yeah. spouse, friend, just ask a bunch of questions. Hey, you won't like. believe what you'll find out. Yeah. You won't believe it. I promise you, you'll be fascinated. You know, we have, I'm, I think we're at 75 or 78 or we're somewhere in the neighborhood in terms of total episodes, right? And we've had a number of interviews where I sat down with people. Never in a million years did I expect what I found out. Yeah. I mean, I sat with a lady that I've done a lot of business with. She was bedridden for six years. Six years. I had no idea. Wow. No idea, right? And I mean, it's just, you know, I, I sat with a kid that's 24 years old. I can call him a kid because I'm old enough to be his dad, right? My son's 25. Literally, yeah. <laughs> um, this, this young man grew up in a household where his mom, dad, grandparents, aunts, uncles, everybody were gang members. He was an active gang member in City Heights in San Diego. That's where he grew up. 
he had his life threatened the second semester of his freshman year in high school. They, because of zero tolerance, he was able to he was able to to, to, to fend this guy off mm. and save his save his life. Right, he was expelled, so he flunked the second semester of his freshman year. If you look at all the statistics, he should be either dead or in prison. He is literally one step away. All he has to do is is sign the the letter, sign the application from Harvard Law. Wow. His letters of recommendation for admission into Harvard Law by Harvard Law graduates, Stanford Law graduate, they're former professors of his. Not in a million years did I realize what I was getting into when I sat down with him and asked him his life story, right? It's just fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And I'll leave you with this. So the one thing that I have told my kids is to, is to basically print a page and the top of it needs to say, stay in curiosity. Mm. The bottom, stay out of judgment. Print it in large font and put it up in front of wherever you work. So you look at it every day, okay? As a reminder, because here's the thing, you know about norms and all that kind of thing, right? In the United States today, the idea of a conversation is not asking a question and finding out about somebody, it's, I'm literally trying to figure out what I'm going to say to you next yeah. to respond to what it was you just said. Peter, that's a debate. Yep. That's not a conversation. Okay. You need to be listening to whatever the response is. Make sense? Yeah. Anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to get off track. No, I mean, what, one of my favorite things I've ever taught on is on listening. And one of my favorite facts that has blown my mind every time I think about it is that the average human in terms of words per minute that they can speak mm -hmm. is somewhere like fastest, maybe 170, mm -hmm. 160. But the average human can listen to and comprehend close to like three, 400 words per minute. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. So that's why when you watch YouTube on two times speed, <laughs> you do that, but I do it sometimes. You know, like I get it and mm -hmm. I'm, I'm following along. So the, the question is, if I'm in a conversation with someone mm -hmm. who can only speak half or less of what I can comprehend, mm -hmm. what is the rest of my mental capacity going towards? Right. And that's the biggest issue with distraction that we have. Mm -hmm. It's not literally, I mean, you could be at a Buffalo Wild Wings and be watching the TV in a conversation. You could be on the cell phone with someone while trying to text or flip through your Instagram. Mm -hmm. We literally have those real distractions. But the invisible distraction is like, what am I going to eat for dinner? Mm -hmm. What am I doing this weekend? What do I have to get done? Mm -hmm. And I'm literally in a conversation with you where right. I can be thinking that way. Mm -hmm. Instead of, you know, when we actually study the facts, the verbal, the words coming out of your mouth is just a small fraction of what you are communicating at mm -hmm. the moment. So that rest of our mental capacity is designed to be able to pick on your tone, your facial features, your body language, and you can see things where, and one of the things when you talk about asking questions, one of my favorite um, things is usually when you ask an initial question, mm -hmm. someone will give you a very basic response oh, yeah. of what they think they want, you want them to say. Politically correct. And then if you just pause and wait, mm -hmm. then it like, the dam breaks. <laughs> so it's like literally when you ask someone like, how are you doing? Mm -hmm. And you can read that something's going on. Mm -hmm. um, and they say, I'm fine. 
and you just kind of sit and nod your head and make eye contact and like listen you don't have to say anything mm -hmm. just give it a few seconds then it will just poof, right? yeah it's amazing and they're it's like that's what i'm talking about they're literally dying to tell you their story they're literally dying to tell you what's going on you just gotta let them do it you just gotta be willing to ask yeah. right like somebody will say to me i'm fine okay how could you be better right is there what's going on that's keeping you from being amazing right like what's and, new and exciting yeah if you are well, fine, i mean right? tell me more about being fine right yeah. and all of a sudden it's like the floodgates just open yeah you know and it's so yeah it's it's literally all about for me anyway it's all about staying in curiosity and my kids grew up with it they literally grew up with their dad being an example of exactly what I want them to do. I want them to, to resolve conflict. I want them to figure out and solve problems. I want them to be active and I want them to be leaders. And I told them, I said, listen, I am not here to be your best friend. I am here to be your dad and I'm here to prepare you to go out in that big, beautiful world. And the world is not going to be fathering you, okay? When you're, when I prepare you, you're going to go out of that world and you're going to be a leader. You're not going to be a burden on this society and you're going to leave this society better than the way you found it. That's it. Okay. So you may not agree with what decision I make about not being able to go to a dance or not being able to do this or not being, you know, so-and-so's mother's letting them go. Okay. Well, I'm yeah. not their father. Yeah. You know, and it fell on deaf ears. The thing is, I just asked all the time all the time and it helped you know it helped a lot so anyway so that was fun so uh, so you come, so you go to college where do you go to college so um, growing up the way I did and most of my classmates in high school um, our plan was to go back to our home countries for college okay. like going to college in the Philippines was never necessarily on the agenda for me Although I did have some classmates that did. Yeah. Most of my, the international school I went to is very, you know, we had SATs, we had ACTs, we had um, AP classes. We even had IGCSE, which is kind of like the British system. So for oh. people that were going back to Australia or New mm -hmm. Zealand or, or Britain, like they could, um, they could take those courses and, and get, a credit, get, get credit, credited, yeah. right? So I had a few AP classes, got credited. So um, most of our, times that we were in America, those years that my parents were here was all in California, mm -hmm. whether Southern California, Central California. So I, that was like my home-ish. Okay. And my, my dad's side of the family was in Minnesota. So I had that contrast of like, this is what weather could look like <laughs> if I chose to live over here. So a lot of his um, siblings and my cousins all went to school in Minneapolis. Yeah. Where I was like, you know what? <laughs> yeah. And it was funny. I had other friends in the dorm looking at different schools. You know, we talk about it. One of my favorite memories, um, there's a small little school in Michigan called Calvin. And uh, um, one of the, when my friend was telling me he was going to the school, and I found this 24 hour webcam service. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and I look it up, and, you know, it's a 15 hour time difference. So, middle of the day there is middle of the night. And it must have been like 2 a.m., right? And there's this webcam on like a lamp lamp post. Yeah. It looks like a blizzard. <laughs> and I was like, not going to that school. Nope, not going there. Yeah. Right? And, uh, <laughs> and 
Yeah, we're going to like expert delete. I'm used to tropical weather. Yeah. You know, close to the equator. Right. You know, it gets light and dark the same time right. all year round. So right. California, Southern California specifically, was kind of like, okay, I feel like I can fit in here. So I looked at <laughs> without well, freezing when it took us yeah, off, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, um, anyways, I uh, in my mind I looked at a lot of small private schools. I had gone to a lot of smaller schools growing up, and it just intimidated me to think of going to like a San Diego State or a UCSD that sixty thousand, forty thousand people. So um, I, I settled on Point Loma Nazarene University, so yeah. PLNU, mm -hmm. and it's it's hard to compete with the view there. So yeah, no kidding. My brother was going to the school, so he's two years older, so he was there. Oh, he was at Point Loma. Yeah. Oh, okay. So it was kind of yeah. it was really the only school I applied to, and um, got in, yeah. and uh, so Beautiful. that was fun. And the unique thing about starting college was, if you think about people that, oh, I live in San Marcos and I'm going to go to SDSU. They're mm -hmm. like, it's kind of away from home. <laughs> but for me, it was like, my parents lived and worked in the Philippines 8,000 miles away. Yeah. And I was going to college on my own. And uh, um, my brother, although he went to Point Loma, the summer immediately before my freshman year, he was in a major car accident oh, no. where he had to take a year off to recover. Mm -hmm. So he went and lived with my parents. So I was basically starting, it was me. All by yourself. <laughs> and, you know, having a, things that you don't think about, mm -hmm. you know, setting up a phone plan, yeah. you know, like Point Loma has such a, it's on a national park, so it's limited parking. Mm -hmm. Freshmen aren't allowed to have vehicles. Mm -hmm. But I had a vehicle because I didn't have a family in the country, right? right. So my, my closest, like, immediate family was um, Bakersfield. My wow. mom's sisters. And then we had a family friend living here in San Diego that was like my mailing address, right? <laughs> but I had a car as a freshman and I remember going to like pub, public safety, you know, like our mm -hmm. on-campus police and like trying to get clearance. Right. Like, hey, I own this car, mm -hmm. you know, where would I put it if I can't bring it to campus? And right. I couldn't get clearance. So I ended up finding, having to find like a local church that supports my parents. Mm -hmm. And like turning off the registration, like parking it in a driveway and just leaving it for a year. But again, these are things that as an 18 year old, yeah. you know, it's like an affidavit of non-use at right. the DMV. What's right. that? Exactly. You know, like a lot of these things I had to figure out and, and grow up pretty quick yeah. um, to solve those problems. Yeah. No kidding. And uh, that's wild. I think a big part of it, actually my summer between my junior and senior year, I did, um, I mentioned my dad did a summer sales mm -hmm. internship. Yeah. I did that. It's like a college internship. The company's called Southwestern. Mm -hmm. They've been around since 1855. They're the oldest internship and the longest running direct-to-consumer sales company in America. Wow. So they started selling um, books door-to-door -door on horseback. That was before the light bulb was invented. So it's like wow. a really old company that's like a, it's kind of the uh, training ground for sales and communication for college kids. Yeah. So my dad had did that. He told me these stories. I was like, dad, you're crazy. I'm not going to do anything like that. I was like a shy kid. And so um, my brother did that too. And then they sat me down my junior year in high school. We were in America that, that, that year. Yeah. And basically, I was like, no, they're going to try to get me to do this stupid sales thing. I was like, I'm going to pay for college some other way. And they explained that it wasn't about 
liking sales. Mm -hmm. It wasn't about the idea of going door to door, which horrified me, <laughs> but it was about personal growth. Yeah. And I think a lot of the culture, like the company mission statement is um, helping young people develop skills and character to achieve their goals in life. Oh, so that's wise. the reason they do a door to door summer sales internship is not because, you know, like if you're a college kid, you got to pay for school. Mm -hmm. You want to build your resume. You want to be equipped with the skills that would make you successful after college that you're not going to learn in your class. Yeah. There's nothing better than like a sales and leadership program mm -hmm. to learn how to communicate. That's going to equip you to be successful yeah. in, I agree with that. In, in life. So for me, it was like, very logical decision, Mike. I was like, okay, sign me up. <laughs> Not even gonna think about it till the summer. And it was it was a while, but again, this was a, I was 16, 17, mm -hmm. going door to door in Duluth, Minnesota wow. uh, for the summer. And you know, like I'd grown up in the Philippines and I literally, it was an internship designed for college kids. So I was like one of the youngest kids there. <laughs> and, um, I went for, normally there are 12 summers because mm -hmm. college students have longer summers than high school. Mm -hmm. And I just had a plane ticket at the end of summer to go back to Philippines. So I had like this short little seven weeks that I did this thing. But uh, um, I ended up doing that for eight more summers. Wow. Paid my way through Point Loma. And then I um, worked full-time recruiting students from San Diego State a couple years afterwards to kind of gain more of leadership skills. Sure. But I think early on that instilled this um, character trait in me of like, I'm not doing things because I like them or they're easy, mm -hmm. but because of who I'm going to become in the process. Yeah. So I think that made a big impact. Obviously, I told you that story as a freshman in college, but problem solving wasn't that big of an issue anymore because mm -hmm. I've been, you know, like, and they train you, put your phone away during the day. Mm -hmm. You go out and work, and if something goes wrong, you figure it out, which mm -hmm. I think is so powerful for young people to learn on an early age because you know if you're trained that I just grew up with my parents mm -hmm. and when something goes wrong I can just call dad and he can bail me out right. that's a great luxury mm -hmm. but when you are forced to think creatively and problem solve it's incredible what you can do and also just the the attitude shift for someone like I've had some crazy things happen in my life from I got evacuated by the UN when I was in Haiti because of mobs. Mm. Um, and then I got mugged in South Africa. And there's these crazy things that have happened and we might get into those stories, but I remember like in Cape Town, South Africa, after getting mugged, I was stabbed in my hand, it was minor. And I'm sitting in the hospital and I'm, I'm, I'm like, this is a great story. You know, like, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm alive, you know, I, I, I'd I spent time that day in a I'm hospital, live sitting there thinking about all the other places that I could have gotten stabbed. Yeah. My, my hand worked, right? And I was with a buddy and his wife shows up and her face is all red and she's been crying. And I was like, what's wrong? Because in my mind, I'm like, I'm fine, I'm okay, right? right? Like, I don't know, again, it's hard to explain and I'm kind of jumping a lot of things there, but like, right. I think that attitude of, of having to solve your own problems, mm -hmm. um, choosing to focus on what you can control not obsessing about what's out of your control. Right. Those are things that I thankfully learned very early on from a very challenging, difficult summer internship as a college kid. Right. Have totally impacted so many facets of my life since. So amazing. That college, yeah, that college season was very transformative, not only from coming to America, 
um, I loved school and I loved that college experience, but also my summers were really tough, but um, a really big deal for, you know, just de developing character. Mm -hmm. Life skills. Yeah. yeah, life skills. So so what did you major in at Point Loma? Yeah, that's a fun, fun one. Um, you'll, you'll like, because you talked about my dad already. He, my dad was so, he literally in the Philippines, so as a missionary, obviously, he was really well connected. He also, like, the only, the bit, like, people know my father. Mm -hmm. And, because um, he's this giant six foot three white man that speaks fluent. <laughs> and he can preach in five different languages. So it's like, wow. they know of this guy. Mm -hmm. And so he's really well connected. And so in, in school, he brought me and my brother to visit all these successful people that he knew. Yeah. People that own different businesses all throughout Tacloba and politicians, things like that. And he actually sat us down in their office and would we would ask questions about what they did in college mm -hmm. and how they got to where they were. Genius idea. Absolutely. I, as a kid, I was like, Dad, this is boring. Why are we doing this? And um, the funny thing that I learned, I don't know if this is what he would have wanted me to learn, but what I took away <laughs> from this whole experience my, was I was like, oh, nobody does what they studied. <laughs> like, Unintended consequences. Yeah, right? nobody does what they actually studied in college. So I was like, I want to be a lawyer or, or, or a doctor. So I was like, I guess I'm going to study what I want to. <laughs> what sounds fun? Oh, like literally you. this was my thinking. Yeah. And in high school, I'd come across like video editing. I'd come across Photoshop. Yeah. I found out about graphic design. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, yeah, graphic design. That's going to be fun. I get to play on the computer and design sure. things. And my uncle, um, my dad's, one of his younger brothers, builds power plants in the Philippines, big yeah. science guy. He knew about my grades and how good I was at science. And I remember him like worried about my future. Yeah. Like, why is your son studying art? Yeah. Because he, he could be so successful in yeah. science and math. It's a waste. And I remember it's like, it's a waste. But that wasn't where my mind was at. Mm -hmm. And you'll laugh at this, Mike. I started, I think first semester in college, I found out about this idea of a double major. Ooh. I didn't know this. And, you know, like missionary kid lifestyle, you know, growing mm -hmm. up without much. I go, I could get two for the price of one. Right. I was like, sign He's me up. Martin. So then I'm already in college. I'm at Point Loma. I'm like looking at the list of what are all the other things I can study. Yeah. And there was media communications and filmmaking. I was like, I like movies. Yeah. Let's do that. Let's go. So then I um, basically most of my college career, I double majored wow. in graphic design and uh, media production mm -hmm. um, with an emphasis, more of the general production, so radio, TV, film. And uh, I ended up graduating with a minor in graphic design because I had a few credits and it's like not worth it to pay for a semester at Point Loma. But it was like, I was like, sign me up for the maximum credit load. Oh, wow. I was trying to like, where can I fit that one unit elective so I can get at the max? I never would get you could get more units and pay extra. Mm -hmm. I was like, no, <laughs> like get right to the max. I was like getting my money's worth yeah. in college was like my attitude. So good. And so, um, yeah, I studied basically art and communications. Oh, that's cool. And so it was, is very unique going from being in high school where I was the type of test taker, Mike, mm -hmm. where it's like, I would go through, finish the test and then go back to all the questions I wasn't sure about. And then like kind of estimate what my score would be because I was just trying to get to a hundred. Mm -hmm. That was like my competition. I want to ace this thing every right. single time, which is a very like study for test, memorize facts, 
excel. And then mm -hmm. I go into these art classes, that uh, art project, the graphic design, you can spend six hours on this thing and be like, this is garbage, let me start over. Yeah. So it was like a whole different mental, emotional muscle mm -hmm. to work on projects. And sometimes I'd be in the library working on a project and just want to be done. And like longingly look at the people in like biochem or in nursing <laughs> that are just studying for a test. I'm right. like, that's so easy. I right. just study for a test. Obviously, it's not that easy, but you know, it was like a it's a, an interesting change yeah. um, in in pace and how I went about school and study. But that was a really fun fun season for me to be creative and 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 create things and and do film and and video production. That's cool. So were you in school for four years? Yeah. Okay. So you graduated. Then what happened? So I graduated, um, and uh, kind of the options, that summer internship I had, there was an option to go full-time. Right. And the attitude I had about that was like, I want to do this until I've kind of soaked everything I can out of right. it. And I didn't quite understand what doing that full-time looked like mm -hmm. versus like being in school. But uh, um, I had seen mentors and had seen where it's like, there's a skill set here that mm -hmm. I don't quite know and I wanna stick around till I at least get that. Sure. So I did two more years um, of that where I basically during the year, we launched a personal development student organization on San Diego, San Diego State's campus called LEAD, which was like a coaching mm -hmm. um, in where we would run weekly seminars that was like on campus org, right? All yeah. about personal development. And then out of those students, um, we would recruit students that wanted kind of the, the hardcore, mm. you know, like boot camp version would right. come and work with us in the summer. Okay. So kind of my job was recruiting, but we did recruiting through kind of this more open platform where I was actually um, doing one-on-one -on -one coaching with a bunch of college kids hmm. all throughout the year. So I would do one-on-one -on -one coaching sessions. We had like a, um, a whole booklet that brought them through setting goals. One of the big questions like was like, what could you do? What would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? Mm -hmm. Or the exercise of like imagining your own funeral mm -hmm. and thinking about what would you want people to say about you? Right. So I would get college kids. Like I remember this one young girl, um, who was like, I want to be known for my recipes. <laughs> She's like, my abuela has like all these recipes mm -hmm. and we make these at home. And I want to be the mom and the grandma that has those family recipes. And I was like, you know, so it was like really cool asking questions like you yeah. said, and leading all these young people on how to time manage, set goals. Um, so I did that two years and that was kind of like a um, huge growth mm -hmm. season for me. And also, um, what am I trying to say? It it was challenging too, Mike, because mm -hmm. like I had this passion for film. I remember watching like a documentary on Spielberg, <laughs> and being like, "I'm his age now." You know, like when he made Jaws, and mm -hmm. I was like, "What am I doing with my life?" And like debating, do I just drop everything, mm -hmm. go to L.A., eat ramen noodles for years, and try to make it right? right. But it was like. I was always torn and I think I just consistently chose looking at my life now, what's the best opportunity. Yeah. And in my mind, um, if I wanted to make films someday, learning the sales skills, making money, mm -hmm. um, 
if you're gonna make a film, you gotta sell that film. You gotta get people to watch that film. So it's like, in my mind, it's still on the path. Yeah. It wasn't derailing or turning away. It was like, these are all skills I'm learning now mm -hmm. and the best opportunity I have access to at the moment that are gonna help me potentially get that one wage or that eventual dream. Right. And one of the ways I look at life too, Mike, is like, I could have fought my way to get what I wanted and become a filmmaker then. Mm -hmm. Or at 40, right, I might have built a career, developed myself, raised my family, and then all of a sudden have an opportunity where I'm doing something at a much higher level versus having to work my way through the ranks, right? Gotcha. Because a lot of times through relationships, things like that. So I still have an interest in that. Mm -hmm. That might come about someday. I use those skill sets in my, my professional job now. But yeah. Uh, yeah, that's what I did immediately afterwards. Okay. So then you leave Southwest. Yeah. What makes you leave Southwest? I was just at a place in my career where um, at that age, it's either you had a large enough organization mm -hmm. that it made sense to continue. Mm -hmm. But I, although I had some success, I things didn't pan out numbers wise where it's like, this just wasn't that attractive. Yeah. You know, I like, I, I swung at that a few times mm -hmm. to try to get to a big enough organization mm -hmm. and didn't quite get there. So then um, I actually worked for six months with my brother um, selling insurance. Okay. And then I quit it all and went to a Bible school for a year. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Here in uh, San Diego, um, the Rock Church had a uh, discipleship school called Impact 195, yeah. which was basically a year, 20 hours a week. You basically study what the Bible really means yeah. and what that means for your life. Um, and uh, through that, I got to go on some of those trips. I mentioned South Africa and mm -hmm. Haiti. Um, and then I felt um, that that longing and that calling to go work with my parents because I was like, I grew up there. And it's kind of like, I know your, your family, you come from living on a farm and mm -hmm. you actually farmed with them. Yeah, for nine but years. I think a lot of people that have childhoods, their dad's an accountant. Mm -hmm. What do they really know about accounting? Yeah. Similar to me, I grew up in the Philippines mm -hmm. as a missionary kid, but I didn't really do anything with my parents. So right. there was this kind of uh, calling of like, hey, I want to actually go and experience that right. and be a part of what my parents have spent their dedicated their lives to. Yeah. Like, I want to help with that. Oh, um, cool. So then I went after that year. I went um, straight out to the Philippines and, and worked as a, um, a teacher and basically the pastor of the campus. So we'd have like weekly um, chapel services. Mm -hmm. So I basically taught, you know, everyone in the school, kinder through 12th grade, <laughs> at some capacity. Yeah. Um, that, that season was pretty cool. That's awesome. So you go there, you spend how long? About a year. Okay. Yeah. So just a, a school year. It was funny because I it got upgraded. <laughs> I was like, I'm just gonna go for the summer and hang out yeah. and help. Yeah. And then my dad was like, if you really want to make a difference, you should work at the school, yeah. right? And at least stay six months. No one's gonna, you're not gonna make any sort of impact in two months. Right. And so I like prepared to go out for six months and then um, like the few weeks before, I was like, you know what, if I'm working at a school and I'm there for six months and then I leave. That's almost worse. You know, yeah. if you leave a, a, a an empty gap. Right in the middle, yeah. So 
anyways, last minute, I decided to stay for a year. <laughs> Whoa. And, uh, and then coming back was kind of like this big existential quarter-life crisis of like, what do I do now? <laughs> what made you come back? Well, there were a couple things, Mike. Um, essentially, going out, there's a lot of complications people don't think about um, in terms of visas, mm -hmm. you know. I actually had to, uh, like I wasn't getting paid through the school, I had to raise money to go out. Mm -hmm. So I had raised enough money for a year if I were to stay, I would have had to come back and raise more money wow. um, and support to go back out. So like the only way, there's lots of ways to get visas, but yeah. like basically the way that I was doing it was all of my money had to come from America. Gotcha. Right. And I couldn't be paid by the Philippines. And so um, I had to, to do that. So it was kind of this thing partially was like this time was up. Mm -hmm. If I wanted to stay, it would have been a lot more work to stay. Mm -hmm. And also like, if I'm being honest, and I've reflected on this a lot, looking at my immaturity at that time, and it was like, I was doing some really phenomenal things in the lives of these kids. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, it was a, a huge confidence builder in my life because I remember having other faculty, staff, my parents say like, whatever you do, do something like this because you're really good at it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember sitting in my office one time and being like, you know what? This is only like a couple hundred kids. Like, I want to make movies and impact the world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think young people sometimes, they have this delusion of grandeur. <laughs> and it's like, that wasn't big enough for me at the yeah. time, Mike. Yeah, I think we all do. And I was like, you know what? This is just some small school in the Philippines and, you know, I'm looking at social media, seeing people that have fame and, you know, there was that, that, that desire, mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, it's an itch. It's an itch. Yeah. And so that was part of it. Part of it was like, I was single and it was a very lonely experience. Um, there was parts of it where I would see amazing things happen. You know, one of the cool things about serving God is like, I know what my personal capacity is and what my skill set is. Mm -hmm. And I show up and I might have even like crammed to prepare for this thing. And then what actually happens the day of is much greater than that. Wow. And I'm like, what's in the gap? Mm -hmm. And it's just, I was an instrument being used by the Lord mm -hmm. and he wanted to do his thing. And he was just inviting me along for the ride. Mm -hmm. And so many times I'd pause Mike and be like, did anyone else see that? <laughs> and it's like, for me, I just like, I could see it. like. People in participation might have just thought that was me, right? You know, and I was just good at that. You were playing that all along. <laughs> in my mind, I'm like, and I wanted, you know, I, I there was this this longing of like, no one quite gets what I'm going through, and part of coming back too was like, you know, I I'd love to meet someone that I can share my life with, yeah. and I didn't see that happening quickly or anytime soon, um, being there. Yeah. They almost so, had to come back here to meet whoever you were going to meet. Yeah, which I'm still in the process of. Wow. <laughs> so, <laughs> so how long has it been? Oh, that was, uh, what would that have been? 20, um, it's been six years. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It's been six years since. So I've been working. When I came back, it was funny, Mike. I had it set in my mind. I'm going to get a salary position mm -hmm. doing video production. Mm -hmm. I want to get into the industry. I'm sick of the sales stuff. Right. You know, going out in the mission field, I had to raise support. It's kind of like 
you know, doing the same commission, (laughs) you fight for what you eat, right? I was like, I want someone to pay me money. I just want to know what I'm going to make. And then um, when I got back here, I was wrestling with all these options. And one thing I'd learned over there was just how much I enjoyed teaching and Mm -hmm. speaking and and, um, how much I felt gifted in that. So Mm -hmm. I was like, well, what is the one thing I have mastery of? Like, well, I spent pretty much a decade doing sales. Most of my professional life is sales. So then I reached back out to that company, Southwestern, and they have a uh, kind of a headhunting sister company. Mm -hmm. And I was like, hey, can you find me a job that's like training and coaching in sales? Mm -hmm. Because this is what I've learned. And so the company I work with now, Southwestern Consulting, same name as you can tell, Mm -hmm. is their training and and coaching division. I didn't even know it existed at the time. so what I've been ever since is basically one-on-one coaching uh, with entrepreneurs, business owners, leaders, salespeople, basically helping them reach their goals. Gotcha. And then I run a lot of workshops. So most companies that have teams, mm-hmm. kind of the way that I network, the same way for you as a realtor, you might do a buyer's workshop. Mm-hmm. It's just like valuable information. Mm-hmm. And you do a bunch of those, and out of those people decide to buy a home through you. Right. So for us, we do these workshops where we'll partner with like a team leader or a broker or, Mm -hmm. you know, in the real estate world Mm -hmm. or any business that has a team and we'll come out and do a free workshop, kind of customize it with the leader. Um, And then from there, that's kind of how we engage people in coaching Mm -hmm. because their life's not going to change in an hour. And a lot of people realize, man, I have some goals that I really want to hit. It'd be helpful to have someone to support me with that. So I have a team, I'm on a team of about 150 coaches. Wow. So every time I run a workshop, it's like next week I'll be in Seattle working with a couple RV dealerships. Wow. If any of those people there enroll in our coaching program, it's not that I'm their coach, we'll use a personality assessment, match them with a coach, and then vice versa, a lot of my clients end up getting matched with me yeah. based on personality and other, you know, we have a, a team that actually does that. So. Part of my time, maybe 40%, is like one-on-one, <laughs> like you said, Socratic coaching, asking yeah. questions, mm-hmm. helping people decide on their vision, their goals, helping them put action steps. And then the other piece is networking with um, leaders to actually run trainings and do workshops mm-hmm. um, to kind of add value to groups. Right. So what's your favorite thing about working for Southwestern Consulting? My favorite thing, um, I think there are times, my brother asked me this question recently, Mike. Uh, <laughs> I could say a lot of things, but yeah. I have trouble with favorites, but I'll give you this answer. There are times that I'm on a coaching call mm-hmm. and someone will come on and they're emotional and they're a hot mess. Mm-hmm. And um, part of me in that moment is like, whew, what are we gonna do here, <laughs> right? We're five, 10 minutes into the call. Right. And through that process, asking questions, and sometimes, you know, like you'll get emotional. I'll mm-hmm. tear up, they'll tear up. I'll say things directly at them and challenge them. Um, and there's this side of me that comes out in a moment where I'm fighting for this person. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of the call, this person's like, man, that that was like the best call we've had. Mm-hmm. You know, or they'll, I'll see that we resolved that. And then I'll get off the call and be like, wow, I was designed for this. Mm-hmm. You know, like I'm good at this. Like 
there's something that connects with, I think everyone's got different gifts and mm -hmm. different personalities and um, a piece of, I enjoy listening to people. Mm -hmm. I enjoy, um, I have a more agreeable, compassionate, loving native style. Mm -hmm. Like even when I had a season where I drove Uber, mm -hmm. like I enjoyed the hot mess 2 a.m. pickups. Wow. <laughs> and other people are like, how could you deal with those, yeah. you know, those drunks in your car? I was like, they were funny, man. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, I just have that piece and a lot of how I was raised gives me a, a level of compassion. I think mm -hmm. that's unique. So for me, when I um, have those calls, I go, wow, like I'm doing something that I'm uniquely gifted at. Mm -hmm. And that person really needed me today. Yeah. And that that's what I'd say is one of my favorite things about what I get to do um, is there's there's nothing like a one-on-one -on -one human connection where someone realizes that you're the most important person to them in that moment mm -hmm. that creates some really cool experiences so you mind if I say something sure so um, they're giving you permission yeah that is a really cool thing that you've earned. Yeah. Like literally. Okay. You have to show up. You have to bring it. You have to be legitimately, honestly, completely interested in what's going on with them to earn that. Okay. It's like you were talking about the, earlier. You were saying, you know, you'll ask somebody a question and they'll, they'll literally stay on the surface. Yep. Right? It's one of the things that frustrates me. I teach in the real estate industry. And one of the things that frustrates me the most is realtors will stay here. Yeah. In fact, all salespeople will stay here. Because if you dig, there's pain down here. Oh, yeah. Right? That's where that those tears come from and that emotion and all that kind of stuff. You're getting there. You're getting there is a big, 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 big deal. Because very few people, and I mean, I'm talking single-digit percentage of the people in this world will actually go there. That's a big deal. And pain is where no one's going to change unless there's... You're never going to transform. You're never going to transform. You're never going to heal. You're never going to get done what you need to get done until you address what that pain is and then figure out a way through it. Yeah. And that's, I think, one of the my favorite growth... like. I joke that it's hard not to live an exceptional life as a coach because like <laughs> people look to me as the source of inspiration and example for their life. So I got to bring it and live it in my life. But I think one of the areas that I've grown the most in the last five, six years doing this as a coach is that my natural personality style is much more conflict avoidant, indirect, you know, very good for building long lasting relationships. But as a coach, part of my job is bringing the pain mm -hmm. and asking the tough questions and challenging and confronting and creating that friction. You do see how your dad prepared you for all this, right? I did, yeah. I mean, that is brilliant. <laughs> yeah. man. That is brilliant. Yeah. Thank him the next time you talk to him. Yeah. I mean, I know you do anyway, but... Yeah. Um, I'll take them at dinner tonight. That's really cool. Yeah. Oh, you're going to see him. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah, they're, they're in town for a couple months. So. Oh, that's cool. But yeah, it, uh, that's been an area that I've had to grow in because just the way that 
my natural state. Mm -hmm. I don't want to say something, Mike, that's going to offend you or hurt your feelings. I want to be friends with everybody. Mm -hmm. I don't want anyone to be mad at me. And as a coach, part of my job description is I've got to piss you off enough to make you change. Um, and I've learned, and it's fun because it's a lot of my longest, like I, my very first client I was ever assigned, I'm still coaching. Yeah. And he's on the other end of the spectrum mm -hmm. where he's higher on the, uh, um, <laughs> the opposite end of the personality, right? right? More direct. And I've learned a lot of times those clients enjoy working with me mm -hmm. because they're almost like, they have conversations with their team members and it really turns the people off and mm -hmm. it, um, turns people away. And they're like, Peter, how would you say this? Right. <laughs> and I'm able to, right. to add the softness and the, uh, you know, that piece of it. So for me, I've learned, and I think this is not unique to me. I think in most people, there is a side of yourself that's hard to step into. Mm -hmm. Like for me, it's that confrontation. That yeah. confrontation. When I do, I can't live there, but when I do, it's extremely powerful. Yeah. And um, I do what I can in my life to build that muscle mm -hmm. and practice it and gain the level of self-awareness where I can flip it on when necessary. Because it's one thing to have a father who is um, angry all the time and mm -hmm. that's just who they are, mm -hmm. that you expect that. When my friends see me get angry, they're like, Right, like that's unique and strange, mm -hmm. right? Different. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's like when I, and it's not that directness is anger, right? But I'm just saying when I speak powerfully and, and, and with that loud and slow vocal variety of strength, um, that's like what I'm always learning to use when necessary. Mm -hmm. Not manipulate it, not take advantage of it. But for me, that's the hardest thing, the scariest place to step out to um, and that's where I've seen myself be most powerful for mm -hmm. other people yeah so doing that yeah is a stretch for you absolutely right but it's also an opportunity yeah and it's it's where I get to grow the most yeah. and where people around me get to grow the most and I think no matter who you are and what you do there is something like that equivalent in your life yeah. that it's really uncomfortable mm -hmm. um, and it's a stretch. But when you press into that, lean into that, you will grow the most more than you ever have. And the people around you will be impacted the most. And I think that's part of life, right? Where we get to um, step into those places and push ourselves um, yeah, I think it would be a really sad existence if I just stayed in my comfort zone. Yeah, and I, you know, what's interesting about this is the way you were raised. Yeah, you were raised to love people. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. But you were also raised to make a difference. Yeah. And the only way you're really going to make a difference is if you bring a little bit of the heat. Oh yeah. You know, I mean, it's it's uncomfortable. But it is, it's absolutely necessary. And it, you know, to me, it comes down to standards. Mm. Okay. So I, I can be sitting with somebody and having a conversation with them and I'll just ask them point blank. So let me ask you a question. Is this your standard? Is this really what you're currently doing? Is this current, is this really your standard? 
When you think about what your standard is in your life, are you living up to it right now? Mm. Or you might use the word potential or that. Well, I don't go to potential. What I go to is standards because this, here's, here's the thing. Potential is a way overused term. Okay. Agree. As a coach. And it's ethereal. It's ethereal, right? Because what you're capable of, right? Yeah. Okay. But when you sit and have a conversation with somebody about their standards, Mm. that's where things get personal. That's where things, all of a sudden, they have to examine this. You with me? And so I'll ask them. So I know you pretty well by now. And I know that your standard is pretty high. Yeah. So let me ask you a question. Is what you're currently doing and the and the current outcome that you're that you're getting, is that to your standard? Mm. And what it does is it makes them go back and go, oh no. Okay, well let me let me ask you this. How can we get to your standard? See, my standard doesn't matter. It it, it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't, right? I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna tell this person. Oh, sorry. I'm not gonna tell this person what they have to do. Yeah. I'm gonna ask this person. We're here. Your standard is here. Yeah. How are we gonna get here? Right. And as a coach, I'm gonna ask them. What do you need from me to help you get to here? Mm. Because I'm gonna need their permission. Absolutely. If I'm going to lay into them or if I, you know what I'm saying? I'm going to need their permission to hold them accountable. I can tell people all the time. I met with a kid the other day and I can call him a kid because he's young enough to be my son. Right. A lot of them are now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, I'm only a hundred. Right. Um, I sat with him and I said, let me ask you a question. Who holds you accountable? Because it was obvious he didn't have anybody in his life that, and, and my pastor, my former pastor, yeah. who's my ghostwriter on my books. Right? Yeah. See, I, if I, you know, I know, I, I've got to be part Italian because <laughs> if I didn't talk with my hands, I, you know, I'd be tongue tied, right? If I sat on my hands. So, so I'm talking to my, um, so I get this, I get this call from this, from this person, young man, and he says, and he says, hey, by the way, just so you know, your ghostwriter, former pastor, sent me. Mm. Okay. So I go sit with him and we sit and we have coffee. And I'm asking him a ton of questions, right? And I'm pulling stuff. And so all of a sudden I'm asking, I was like, okay, let me ask you a question. Who holds you accountable? And he said, and he thought about it and thought about it and thought about it. Cause he works for his dad. He works for his family. And he's in this, this family owned business and he wants to get out of it. Okay. So who holds you accountable? Um, well, nobody. Okay. And you're married and you've got a baby and you got a baby on the way, right? And you're living with your, with your mother-in-law. Okay. And this is all of, these are all sources of frustration for him. Yeah. Okay. So let me ask you a question. Who holds you accountable? Right. And by the time we were done, it needed to be his wife. It needed to be his wife. I said, okay, so here's your assignment. Go home today and have a conversation with your wife. As uncomfortable as it may be, have a conversation with your wife about holding you accountable. Wow. Okay. And share with her what your standard is because he's telling me what he wants. You with me? He wants to move out of mother-in-law's house. He wants to own his own house. He wants to have his own business. He wants to, he wants to do all these things. 
but who's going to hold him accountable to do those things, right? And so I get into this really uncomfortable conversation with him about, about accountability and specifically about his wife and the relationship that he has with his wife. And he literally says to me, you know, if I asked, if you asked her, she would tell you that I could do better. Okay. Now we know where we're headed, yeah. right? So he goes home, no joke. He goes home and has that conversation with her that afternoon. And I get a message from him that, that evening going, you know, you really know your stuff. Mm. We had the best conversation we've had our entire marriage today. Wow. And he goes, and she's going to hold me accountable. Wow. So that's what I'm getting at, right? Is yeah. it's, it's literally somebody is going to have to hold whoever this is accountable. And they're going to have to get permission from them to do it. Absolutely. Period. Yep. So, anyway. A majority of people I work with, they it gets lonely at the top. It is. And when they're running the company. So I really like this question on who holds you accountable? Mm -hmm. Who holds you accountable? Yeah. Oh, you're asking yeah, me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I that's a great question. Fun. That's a great you question. You can ask me. That's a great question. Because everyone I, listening should have asked years questions. ago, I married accountability. Oh, there. Yeah. I married accountability. But... In premarital counseling, I gave her permission to hold me accountable. So it was it was a different thing, right? So we had a conversation about standards, and we had a conversation about this is this is what I will and will not accept in terms of what the outcome looks like, right? And so we go into premarital counseling with with Bill, who's our my ghostwriter for my book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm writing three, by the way. We start the first one next month. Um, former pastor, did our premarital counseling, right? And he called it the most excruciating experience of his life. They've now written 40 books that have been published on marriage and family. No joke, right? In fact, there's probably, there may be a few of them on these really shelves. <laughs> well, they, they've, been, they've been doing this for a while. Uh, they started doing this right after we got married. Wow. Like literally right after we got married, Bill comes to me and he goes, hey, will you be our success coach? Sure. We happy to, right? Forty some books later, right? Wow. So, um, so, so he, so literally, I said to him, I said, "Look, I haven't had a con I haven't had a relationship with a woman that lasted more than sixty days. Wow. No joke, okay." And I said, "So I don't know how to do this. I don't ever want to get divorced from this woman. I want to be married to her for the rest of my life. I don't. This is, you know, my my standard is we're going to be married forever, okay." And so I said to him, I said, I, you need to think of me as a, bank, as a blank slate. So we go through this process. And at one point, we're in his office at the church. And my fiance at the time, is now my wife, gets up and storms out the door crying. And this man that has the sweetest heart of anybody you've ever met in your life looks at me with the most exasperated look on his face. And he goes, Mike, you need to ask yourself a question. And I said, okay. He goes, do you want to be married or do you want to be right? <laughs> right? Yeah, such a good question. And I went, oh, great question. Because what, I, what dawned on me, I was one of the best debaters mm. in the nation when I was in school. I was in the top one half of 1% when I graduated from high school. Okay, Captain, junior and senior year of high school, the whole thing, right? 
I was really good at arguing. So what would happen is I'd get in an argument with the girl, win the argument, lose the girl. Yeah. Because my competitive juices would start flowing, right? And I was going to win that deal. It didn't matter what it took. There you go. So fast forward. About 20 years later, I get in, we get invited, my wife and I, to a wedding in Phoenix. And it's my former pastor's oldest son's getting married. And I literally watched this kid grow up. I sponsored every single sport he was in. I mean, I still remember him running down the, down the court. He's this tall. He's running down the basketball court with MikeLitton.com on the back on the back of his tank top, right? And I mean, they're you know they're they're barely twice the, twice the height of the basketball, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was just cute as all get out, right? So basically, so he invites us to um, to his wedding, and, I, and we go out, and we're there for the rehearsal at the at the sanctuary, and um, I we're walking up, and he's and he, oh, Mr. Litton, he comes up and gives me a big hug. Thank you so much for coming. We're so excited you're here, and he goes. Could I borrow you for a second? Sure, absolutely. So he takes me around the corner and he says, I'm really nervous, Mr. Litton. And he says, any advice? I said, yeah, I'm gonna tell you what your dad told me. You wanna be married or you wanna be right? Okay, now fast forward another 10 years and this is last year. My, my, my buddy, my friend, Coast writer, former pastor, and his wife are doing a marriage conference. They invite, it's in Arizona, and they invite their son who had just been awarded or voted um, high school football coach of the year for the state of Arizona. They ask him to come up and speak. So he gets up, his, he, the dad introduces him, dad sits down, the son comes up. Son says, before we get started, I wanna tell you something that one of the, one of the wisest men I know shared with me the day before my wedding. Wow. And he goes, and his dad goes, do you have any idea what it was like to sit there and listen to my oldest son <laughs> tell these people the advice that you gave him, that you gave him that I gave you? Oh, that's right? Great. He's yeah, like, this yeah. is one of those, one of those oh. moments, man, that I had to share it with you. So he calls me and tells me, right? So yeah, so that's that's kind of my that's kind of my history, right? Is and it and it was it was rough. It was rough, but we had to get through a bunch of the baggage and a bunch of the stuff that was going on in both of our lives and come to an agreement before we actually said I do. Yep. So that we were on the same page. And you know, to this day, people look at us and go, wow, you guys really operate well. And it's not the way it looks, okay? It's marriage is not easy. It yeah. is tough. But I'll tell you this, if you're prepared correctly, and I mean prepared correctly like we were, it makes things a whole lot easier. Yeah. And it makes you more productive. It makes you more, you know, it makes your life more more joy, more joyous. Um, and it's easier. So, you know, life is rough enough and marriage is rough enough without being on the same page when you get married. And, you know, it, it breaks my heart when I see these kids nowadays getting married and they're like, you know, I ask them, so how'd your premarital counseling go? I'm like what? Because <laughs> yeah, that's the question: Who's holding them accountable? It's not good. The reality is, if you're getting married, premarital counseling is the best form of that. Well, you have to right? you have to get on the same page. Yeah. It's absolutely essential. And you know, you've got you think about it. You've got two people that have lived completely different lives 
There's nothing connecting my wife and I prior to us meeting. Nothing. We have nothing in common except that we have, except that we're football fans. That's pretty much it. There, we have nothing else in common. Our values are similar, right? Our upbringing was, was, you know, in terms of the values that were instilled, that kind of thing. That was, that was similar. She was brought up in the Lutheran church. I was brought up in the Baptist church. So not, you know, some yeah. similarities, but you know what I mean? So there was a lot, there was a lot. I mean, her parents immigrated to, or her parents were born in Puerto Rico. Her grandparents immigrated to Puerto Rico from, from Spain. So, you know, it's a whole different upbringing. Their life being, in, in, you know, she lived in San Diego for 50 some years, almost 60 now. Um, but their life is different than growing up on a farm in Oklahoma and, you know what I mean? All the stuff that I, that I live. Yeah. And so those were things we had to get out. Well, those were things we had to have conversations about. And I've literally had podcast interviews that I've mm. done where I've, where I've hit end on the recording yeah. and the, and the guest gets up and goes, I got to go home and talk to my wife right now. And I'm like, why? <laughs> I just told you six things I haven't told her. Yeah. That's not acceptable. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. you need to, and premarital counseling brings all that out in you. So anyway, so you're a coach, consultant, knocking it out of the park, having a great time. What's next? Um, well, obviously we need to find you a wife. Yeah, that's, that's, that's important for me. Um, but there's levels of that that I can control and can't control. Can I ask you a question? Sure. Why has it taken six years? Oh, well, I mean, it's technically longer than six years if you're looking. <laughs> but, uh, um, hmm. So... That's one of those interesting questions. I don't know. It's been a while since you were single, yeah. Mike. But I think it has been actually. <laughs> single people, especially getting into your thirties, when people ask what, why, right? It implies first off that there's something wrong with the season. Oh, I'm not. I'm not, I'm not making, saying. I'm not making any implication but, at all. I'm just asking. I'm just asking in terms of of why. What What's your opinion in terms opinion. of what you think? Why do you think it's taken as long as it has? Well, so I think um, there are things in my life that have happened that uh, I'm very grateful for. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I would have had those experiences in a relationship. There's kind of like my plan, mm -hmm. which would have been getting out of college and get married right away. Mm -hmm. And I think God's plan has had some different turns to it. Okay. And uh, I think my opinion on why it's taken so long is not necessarily that I have been doing something wrong or there's just no quality Christian girls out there or single girls out there. It's not any of that. I think um, there's been great purpose and meaning to the years that I've spent. And I'm very grateful for what I've been able to learn pre-making that commitment that I now get to take into that commitment. And um, I'm learning, <laughs> I'm not great at, I'm learning at surrendering results. I think in, in any facet of our life, whether it's real estate, the gym, right? There is a, a, a natural desire to just focus on a result. Mm -hmm. 
but um, freedom and peace come from spending all your time on the journey and the activity. Mm -hmm. So for me, I'm learning to uh, surrender the result of married or not married, in a relationship, not in a relationship, and let go of control of that mm -hmm. and focus on, hey, am I becoming the type of person that would be someone someone want to be married to? Mm -hmm. Am I putting myself in an environment where I'm going to meet new people? Now, I'm not I'm not implying you did anything wrong. Yeah. I'm just I'm just asking I'm just asking you what you think. Yeah. I think there's been important things that have happened. Yeah. That wouldn't have gone that way. I have different priorities if I was married, right? So the simple version, like I said, is I'm not necessarily like gung-ho, yay. Mm -hmm. I would have chosen this for myself. Yeah. But in hindsight, I'm like, this is what it has been. And I think there was great purpose and meaning to what I've been able to do and accomplish yeah. in the time that I've been single that I'm grateful for. So how old are you now? 33. Okay. So when I was, I was going to get married or not going to get married until I was 35. Until uh, everybody's going to be 35 when I got that married. That's your plan. Uh, it's, <laughs> that's the way it's going to be. Da, 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 that's the standard or whatever, right? And I'm 25. That would have been my plan. <laughs> no, sorry, 24. I'm 24. I'm 24 and I'm standing in the back room, the back of a seminar, a room where a seminar is happening. And there's a bunch of people standing on either side of me that are trying to talk me into coming to work at this company. Mm. And they're putting on the seminar, right? They're yeah, sponsoring. Yeah, yeah. And so the seminar finishes, and they're, you know, yapping, 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 right? Seminar finishes, and I look at the crowd. And in this entire crowd of, I don't know, maybe 100 plus people, you know, maybe more, there might have been 150. This girl gets up, turns around, and stretches. But she's facing me, right? Because mm -hmm. they were looking the other way. So we're, you know. And I went, hey, who's that? And they go, oh, that's Mimi. I'm like, I, we need to get me over there so I can meet her, okay? And they're like, okay, well, let's go see if we, you know. So they, they you know, we walk over, right? And I'm like, introduce me to Mimi. Now I can introduce myself to Mimi, yeah. right? I've never met a stranger, according to most people, right? So I, I, you know, we head over there. She goes out the other door. Mm. By the time we get out to the parking lot, she's driven away. So I never got a chance to meet her. Two years later, that same company hires me. True story. Hires me as the VP of Sales and Marketing. Puts me in charge of forty-eight loan officers. And I'm, I'm 26, right? And the, the owner says, hey, why don't you just give them a real quick five-minute sample of what the sales training's going to be like? And so I got up and I did 10 minutes, basically, right? She's sitting in the front row, okay? And as soon as I finished, like as soon as I finished, I got a standing ovation and everybody's whooping and hollering and they're so excited and all this kind of stuff. She gets up and walks out the door. Very first person out, right? And the owner, the owner happens to be standing in the, you can't make this up, by the way. Yeah, the owner happens right. to be standing in an office that she's walking out. And, she, and he goes, what do you think? And she said, that's the most obnoxious thing I've ever seen in my life. Who in the world does he think he is? Two years later, we were married. Wow. I'm not joking. 
right? But I had figured out in my mind what my plan was going to be. And I was going to be married when I was 35, and that was it. Okay, I'm married at 27, right? I was almost 28. Um, yeah. Yeah. Right? So here's the thing that I'm going to share with you. When the, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. The same thing happens in life. Okay? Same thing happens in life. Look in the Bible. When you're ready, it'll appear. You with me? Yep. Because God's working on this, I promise you. Yeah. I promise you. You just got to be ready. Yeah. I like that. So, yeah, that's... The question was, what's next? Yeah, I'll get ready. <laughs> but uh, um, other things wise, professionally, I uh, I had just long time coming launched some social media activity, yeah. posting videos and little clips of things I say on coaching calls. Um, Boy, I like that. So I, I have a setup where whenever a client asks me a question, I can record my response and then I put little YouTube shorts or Instagram reels up. So I've just started that this fall, something I've been wanting to do for a while and, and get into more content creation. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's a no brainer as a coach. It's like if I was sitting in a room trying to come up with ideas, I would not come up with half the ideas you do in conversations mm -hmm. with people about real problems. So yeah. I feel like part of what I want to accomplish is encapsulate those and be able to share those with more people. There's wisdom there. Absolutely. And uh, it's like a co-creation. Mm -hmm. You know, like sometimes someone has a problem. I don't know the answer, but through the process of our coaching call, we create the answer. And that answer is really valuable for a lot of other people. So yeah. for me, finding ways to kind of take this beautiful opportunity and gift I have with what I get to do for work and be able to share those insights with others. So that's something I'm working on and growing. Um, I've done a bit more training and speaking, so um, looking to get more opportunities for that. I, I like the idea of writing a book. I did a little fun chapter in a book. If you've ever seen those books that are like a compilation on a theme, mm -hmm. they have a bunch of different authors. Mm -hmm. I did a chapter in one, and it was funny when I was being asked to do it, one of my mentors said, well, I'd probably wait longer to write something because when you really have something to say that no one else has said before, then you should write a book. And I was like, oh, you don't know me. I have plenty to say. <laughs> I have lots of good stuff, right? So then I write this chapter in this book and then I read uh, Atomic Habits later that year. And I was like, oh man, James Clear. I mean, he didn't say it the way I said it, but like, that was much better than what I said. And I was like, well, who am I? Right? So it's like, there's a lot of ideas and things I've been working on in terms of books. I think um, not the same way you said that statement earlier, but I think when um, when there's an idea or a principle or concept that is powerful enough, that's unsaid, I'm not, I that experience cured me of writing a book to be able to say I'm an author. Mm -hmm. I think there's just something cool for people nowadays to be like, oh, I wrote a book, mm -hmm. you know? And nothing against people that write books, but just like, I want to write a book when I have something that I have to say mm -hmm. that I feel is worth that, right? Mm -hmm. But I do see that in the future. Mm -hmm. How soon? I don't know. 
Um, and I also want to get into um, building more. Our company has kind of mastered and is really great at creating, um, at scaling this concept of one-on-one accountability committee, mm-hmm. which I think at its core, I can't think of a better method to help someone reach their goals than what we're doing. But um, that only meets a specific small niche of people that are ready for that, willing for that, Mm -hmm. in that space in their life. And there's a lot of quality content that we cover in this capacity that could be delivered through online courses, things like that. So getting into creating um, other learning tools that are more self-paced, that can take a lot of the principles that um, we've developed as a company into just a more manageable package, smaller price points, things like that. I'd love to get into creating that. So those would be some other things. Couple of things. Yeah. You knew it, you knew it. You knew it was coming, right? So the whole idea of writing something that hasn't been written. <laughs> that probably will never happen. I, <laughs> well, but here's, just let me, let me yeah, ask, yeah, okay? Yeah. So you wrote what you wrote in that, in yeah. that book, the chapter. Yeah. Then you read Atomic Habits. Yeah. Is it possible, is it possible that what, and I read Atomic Habits twice, right? Is it possible that the way he wrote it, even though he's saying the same thing, is it possible that the way he wrote it might not reach everybody that you reached or vice versa? Yeah, and the reality is, my whole point was a topic that was like a sub right. secondary thing right. in one chapter. Right. But yes, you're right. Okay. I think that's that's I think that's, that, yeah. yeah. I think that's worth considering. Exactly. Let me ask you this. Ask me that. So the one-on-one coaching. Yes. Why do you think such a small percentage of the population does one-on-one coaching? Well, I have been learning, the majority of people I talk to, Mike, have never necessarily looked into it. A lot of people have heard of it, but I think as a industry, it's gaining steam. But the reality is I've had situations where companies are paying 100% for their people to get a coach, Mm -hmm. and they say no because Um, It's the accountability. It's being held to something. We, like when you sign up for a coach, you can't ignore what you know you've been needing to do that you've been putting off. You're literally putting money down saying, in this next year or however long I stay in coaching, I am going to overcome this thing I've been battling for most of my life in most scenarios. And I'm going to be held accountable to that. And that's extremely scary. And most people say they want success, but aren't willing to pay the sacrifice to get it. So I would say that's the simple answer. Accountability sucks. <laughs> it's painful. And it goes again. Like we are survival by biology. It's like I want to get, you know, whatever f- calories I consume. Mm-hmm. My brain and my body is trying to use the systems necessary to get as much accomplished with the least expended energy, right? So 
everything about success is the opposite of how our bodies are wired to function. Mm -hmm. We're trying to survive. Mm -hmm. And success is like, get out of your comfort zone. Do something that's more difficult. Like mm -hmm. historians still wonder how we ever went from hunters and gatherers to farmers because mm -hmm. agrarian farming lifestyles are so much more effort in the front end to start that. Mm -hmm. So it's like a lot of success and a lot of what people are signing up for with coaching goes against a lot of their nature. And it's very painful and full of friction. And that's why a lot of people don't do it. I have a question for you. Yeah. Have you read Never Split the Difference? I haven't. Um, I've started out on my audio, Audible. I haven't gone through all of it. But You're going to love it. You're going to love it. In fact, of all the people that I know, you're probably going to love it more than anybody. Mm. There's, a, there's a part in there about, about a, a child who's an American mm. being taken hostage. I don't know if it's a child or an adult, but it's, a, it's an American that's in Haiti. Mm that's taken hostage. And he was the negoti chief negotiator yeah. for um, FBI hostage rescue. And every time an American internationally was, was taken hostage, he got the call to negotiate their freedom. He also worked with one of the warlords in the Philippines too. You're gonna love this, man. Yeah. Your life is literally like where yeah. he's, where he's, you guys have chewed the same dirt. So he talks about something called the amiglia. Do you know what that is? I don't. I know it's the, the amygdala. It's well, that may be what I'm. That may be what I'm talking okay. about. Is that what it is? Is it part of the brain? Part of the brain. Yeah, yeah. Amygdala. Is, amygdala. Sorry, you're good. Amygdala. There's basal ganglia there in go. there too, there so go. you can mix the, the two. But the amygdala. the amygdala is literally responsible for flight or fight. Yeah. Okay. That part of your brain is actively trying to save you. Yeah. It's where fear comes from. Yeah. Right? It's the thing that's trying to preserve you. So if you listen to somebody like David Goggins, David Goggins will tell you that the minute that that amygdala, amygdala? Yeah, amygdala. Am I saying it right? Sorry. I've been saying it wrong all these years. But the day, the minute that that kicks in and that voice says, don't go outside, don't go running, don't, don't work out, right? that's when they trigger it. Tony Robbins is the same way. Tony Robbins goes every morning and does a cold plunge. And the reason he does it is because of his amygdala. Yep. He wants to control that versus it controlling him. Yep. Okay. That's where true success comes from. Yep. Okay. So I wanted to share that with you. And that. here's the other thing. Let me ask you a question. What do people fear the most? Huh. I feel like I, I have answers to that question often, but now that you're asking it me now, what do they fear the most? Hmm. Huh. Based on statistics, based on my opinion. Mm -hmm. Maybe not being enough, right? Like they're afraid of not providing, not having fear of their wants and needs and not, not surviving. It's like imposter syndrome kind of thing. I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to answer this question. Um, what people fear the most. I feel like we're innately wired for 
Man, I'm my brain's going way too deep on this question. It's okay, it's all right. Let me ask you a question. Yeah, try it again. Is it possible that what human beings fear the most is what they don't know? Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. Okay. Fear the unknown. So let me let me share something with you. Yeah. There's some real wisdom in where you're headed with your company in the group coaching idea. Let me share with you what I mean. People will sign up for group coaching way before they sign up for one-on-one -on -one coaching because they want to dip their toe in the water. They want to see what the temperature of the water is. They want to see what that, how that coach is going to treat them. They want to see what this thing is all about, right? So you get them together as a group because there's safety in groups, okay? They get to experience what it is that they, you know, what dabs of success they can have. And once they get a comfort level, they then end up graduating to one-on-one -on -one coaching. Mm. It's a testing ground. It's, it's their opportunity. And I learned this not too long ago from somebody who's incredibly smart. And he was my podcast coach starting, right? right? Cool. And he said, he said, one of the things that you have to do with it, because um, I don't know if you, you may not, it's okay if you don't know this, but over 90% of podcasts never make it past episode two. I, I'm not surprised. I don't know if I heard that exactly. Like ninety-one percent or something. It's yeah. some absolutely crazy number. The number of podcasts versus how many are actually listened to. Right. So when he met me, he was like, "Okay, you're really determined." That I'm like, "Yeah, I'm not. This is not. We're not going to. <laughs> we're not going to two and quitting." Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We're this. We're doing this thing, right? Because I already had. When I by the time I met him to hire him as a coach, I already had everything all set up. I had my equipment all set up. I had everything set up. I was all set up. I was not doing it right, and he pointed that out, right? And so that was, it was incredibly, it was invaluable hiring him as a coach. But one of the things that I learned was a lot of people will not sign up for coaching because they don't know how it's gonna go. They don't know how they're gonna be treated. They don't know if it's gonna be a success, but they'll become a part of a community. Yeah. They'll become a part of a group coaching group that will help them understand the value that comes and then they end up graduating to one-on-one -on -one coaching. Yeah. That's not how I roll, by the way. I hired him right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't even become a yeah. I mean, I literally hired him one-on-one -on -one as a coach and then two weeks later found out there was a community. Mm. Right? Yeah, yeah. I'm the opposite of, yeah. I mean, you know. But anyway, just so you know, the vast majority of people have to ease into things. They have to experience things in a gentle fashion rather than the way some of us do it. <laughs> well, yeah. some of us with brain damage, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's it's brilliant what you guys are working on. Yeah, so it's exciting stuff. And I'd love to see you write a book. I appreciate that. I'm yeah. gonna stay on you until you do. Okay, <laughs> I have a few ideas. I even have some non-fiction ideas. You I absolutely. Fiction ideas too. You absolutely but. will be brilliant. I appreciate that, yeah. Anything else you'd like to cover before we wrap up? Well, the one thing, um, when you asked about accountability, this just hit me. I don't think I've ever kind of verbalized this, but, and I don't say this, I don't know, when you were talking about that question, I was like, that's such a good question, like mm -hmm. asking people. And I always get frustrated when I talk to leaders mm -hmm. who are in charge of so many people, mm -hmm. but they have zero accountability. Yeah. 
And one of the things, and I, I want to say this in the humblest way possible, is that uh, I, and I want to list out my accountability, but like, this is why I, how I can function at a high level. Mm -hmm. um, I have two, two managers, Dave and Emmy, hold me accountable to a lot of things business-wise. Like mm -hmm. any, someone in the company might have a boss that I hire and pay for a one-on-one -on -one coach named Bob. He'll hold me accountable a lot of things and we get in and out of business and work. I have an emotional intelligence coach named Jules, phenomenal. Had a call with her yesterday, helping me develop my skill sets as a actual coach mm -hmm. and how I um, uh, like connect on an emotional level with people. Mm -hmm. I also have Justin, who's my physical trainer, who holds me accountable to go to the gym. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm currently, you know, 17 weeks in, <laughs> consistent. Um, and I, I wouldn't be, I worked with him in 2019 and then stopped because I thought I could do it on my own. Mm -hmm. But now I'm working with him again. Mm -hmm. um, and then I have a group of guys that we meet um, to once or twice a month, um, kind of Peter level that hold me accountable to a lot of things in my personal life and the type of man I want to be and those type of things. So there's a lot there. And then even just the fact that um, I read my Bible every morning is a level of accountability of this is the standard. Mm. Like you said, um, I don't talk about my faith in a way that I'm better than others or all fall short mm -hmm. and I'm broken. And if I didn't look at what the standard was mm -hmm. of what it means to have life abundantly, I would be way off track every day. Mm -hmm. And for me, I have to fight for that. And that's a habit I've had to develop over the years, but to be able to have routines in my life where it's like, okay, this is what I'm held accountable to. This is my standard. And again, as you can see, accountability is lots of forms. Mm -hmm. I have plenty of group. I even have um, the pastors in which I serve with in the church that are you know, it's like, if I'm going to serve at the capacity I do here, <laughs> they, in essence, are holding me accountable. I can't do certain things. And I think, um, if anything, I can attribute um, success or um, accomplishment. It's to seeking those things out and, um, and, and searching for that. Mm -hmm. And that's not even to mention the people that look to me that's another level of accountability as my job but I think whoever you are and wherever you are in life it's like that question that Mike asked about who holds you accountable ask yourself that and then look at where again it's not go hire a one-on-one -on -one coach <laughs> that's for some people um, but it's like man do you have a buddy are you guys at the same place in life mm -hmm. married with kids that can hold each other together to be better fathers, mm -hmm. right? Do you have a spouse? Um, what is your community? Because I think we we die in isolation. Mm -hmm. And I think, I don't know about you, Mike, but COVID was like, this is, this will kill people, mm -hmm. this isolation piece. And, and it did. Yeah. And, and it's still, and it's still having an effect. I mean, alcoholism, drug abuse, all those kind of things, suicide, all that kind of stuff went way through the roof. Because people didn't have the outlet of going to work anymore. Okay? And that whole isolation and that fear and all of that, I mean, it was surreal. And it was one of those things where you found out, at least I found out, how absolutely fragile humankind is. Absolutely, yeah. Okay? We're sort of, a lot of us, teetering on the edge, you know? 
And there's a there's some real wisdom to the fact that you you really need to find somebody that you give permission yes to hold you accountable. Yep. Okay, you give permission to have those uncomfortable conversations yeah. with. Um, I'm going to make one more suggestion, and then we're going to wrap up. There's a book called Men Are Like Waffles, Women Are Like Spaghetti. <laughs> I've heard the Mars and Venus one, but not waffles okay. and spaghetti. That, that ghostwriter of mine, my former pastor, who yeah, yeah, yeah. right, married us, all that, Bill. he wrote it. Mm. Bill and his wife, Pam. It's The idea behind it is men compartmentalize everything. Okay, into these little squares, okay, like a waffle. Women, everything, bless their heart, everything is intertwined like a bowl of spaghetti. You cannot ask a female to leave their emotions at the door because no. it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Everything they do is charged with emotion. And by the way, that's a very, very, very good thing Absolutely. that all of us need to embrace. We need to cherish, okay? So one of the things that I'll do if I'm not sure whether I wanna be in business with somebody or not, is I'll introduce them to my wife. Within 35 seconds, she'll know whether I wanna be in business with that person or not, mm -hmm. okay? She just has an intu intuition. She has that absolute benefit, that absolute prize of emotion that I just don't have. Or the gift, yeah. I just don't have it. Yeah, it's a gift. It's an absolute gift. They're born with it. Yeah. Okay? It also, by the way, will help you when you're getting ready to find your partner in life. Because it's literally a textbook on how women are built. It's also a textbook on how we're built. Yeah. Right? And women need to read that, okay? But we need to be we need to be in a place where we appreciate the way that the women in our life are wired. Mm. I love that, Mike. Yeah, ask yourself who's holding you accountable. That's, that's our challenge: is find someone in your life that you can openly mm -hmm. ask mm -hmm. for accountability. Thanks, buddy. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate your time. This was fun. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. We hope you enjoyed another episode of the Mike Litton Experience. If you did, do us a favor. Smash that subscribe button. Tell your friends, family, and coworkers about our program. And wherever you get your podcasts, please leave us a rating. It helps us to connect with quality people just like you. And that's a wrap. Another episode of the Mike Litton Experience in the books. Reach out to Mike on Instagram at Litton Realty. Want to meet with Mike? Check out calvinly.com slash Rio 760.